Welcome everyone for the second in a series of eight talks on the Eightfold Path. Last week we, uh, I spoke about wise view, which is the first of the Eightfold Path. And I especially um, <coughs> want to emphasize just in review what Thomas Merton said, where he said, uh, we are already one. We just don't. We just imagine ourselves not to be. And I guess because of uh, Thomas Merton's stature and the fact that it came from a different tradition, and the fact that science is saying virtually the same things to us, that there's something that we're not perceiving when we open our eyes that is true. And the question then comes up, why don't we see it? What's going on here that I don't recognize what is being screened at us through the philosophies of the ages and through science and through mystics such as Thomas Merton and many, many, many others? Why is it that I don't perceive that. And if we just change it around a little bit and just listen to the fact of the words of Thomas Merton that we are already one, we just don't perceive it, then maybe we are looking at it wrong. Maybe we are assuming what we see in a different way than what it really is. And then the question comes up, so how can I see, perceive differently? Well, maybe through the mind, you can't. Maybe there's a different way. What brings us here tonight, for very few of us, it would be the mind. For most of us, it's the heart. There's some feeling or some sense in us that there is more to this world than what meets the eye in our assumption. Some of us come to meditation through that sense that there is something else. Others of us are kicked into meditation through despair because it's too, the world's too disappointing. Actually, it's not worth living from that frame of reference, from the reference of wrong view I don't see why there aren't more suicides. Because it breeds despair. It breeds loneliness. It breeds isolation. It breeds confusion and distance. And the emotions of anger and fear are accentuated from that view. So it's an getting an intimation of some other perspective or the possibility of another perspective that we are drawn into spiritual practice or the fact that our old perspective simply isn't working anymore. That we bumped our heads so many times that I just don't want to stand up in that way anymore. It hurts too badly to do that. Or the combination of both of those. Perhaps intimating something else and realizing that the old ways just don't satisfy, aren't ever going to lead to contentment. 
Because when we see the world from wrong view, then we ask the wrong questions of the world. We make the wrong statements about the world. And we develop the wrong strategies in relationship to it. And if it's all based on the false premise, then the whole syllogism of how we live collapses. Right? And therefore, if the assumptions we make about life are suspect, then all of the ways that we deal with life are also suspect. I was working with a woman today who happens to be a, a middle-aged um, minister. And uh, she's had a lot of tragedy, tragedies in her life. She's lost a child and two husbands, and she's still in her 40s. And she had developed a kind of stance to life because of the difficulties of her life where she was going to be self-reliant, that nothing could get in anymore. And she was just going to be able to go through life essentially unaffected. And yet she came to me because there was something that she felt unsatisfied in that approach. And so I said to her, I want you to develop five activities that will increase your vulnerability. Like ask people for help. And it was as if I didn't physically touch her. I just said that. And she lost the wind in her belly. She bent over as if someone had kicked her in the stomach. And it was literally several seconds before she could speak. And she lifted up and she says, I know that's the right way to go, but it's the way, it's absolutely 180 degrees against the way I've been living. And she said, and the way I've been living has just been increasing my suffering. And as we spoke, she said, the, what you're asking me to do is turn my life completely upside down. And that's true for everyone who's entered this room. That's true for everyone who's ever heard the Dharma. We're asking that of you, to turn your life upside down. Is it working this way? Would it be so much of a loss if we gave up that old lifestyle? Isn't it worth the possibilities that we hear through those philosophies, through the science? Isn't it worth approaching those philosophies and seeing if they're true or not? Because what we come into is our hearts. That's what we come into. That's all we're asking of you is for you to become more loving. <laughs> That's really the summation of the process of spiritual growth. Now, becoming more loving means changing the view of the way we live, what we see the world and take the world to be. And as I mentioned, you can't hold on to wrong view and expect the rest of the Eightfold Path to work for you. It has to all be lined up. Everything in your life has to be lined up. 
That's why the rest of the Eightfold Bath has to do with every other aspect of your life. Noticeably missing in the Eightfold Path is right thinking. Because <laughs> that is already out of control. <laughs> but right intention, right aspiration, right resolve is the next step of the path. There's a very nice story in Buddhist literature. A contemporary to the Buddha was a Hindu man of some renown uh, who established the Jain tradition, J-A-I-N tradition, that's still going on in, in India. Mahavira was his name. And one of, and there are a lot of stories in the Buddhist tradition about monks coming up and connecting or having some communication with Jains. So this one time, this Jane was standing out in this field, and he was uh, staring up at the sun, and he was motionless. And the Buddha, with a group of monks, approached the Jane and said, um, the Buddha said to him, um, Sir, what, what are you doing? And the Jane said, I'm standing here to dissolve my karma. The Buddha said, well, how much do you have left to dissolve? And the Jane said, oh, I, I don't know. And the Buddha said, well, how much have you already dissolved? And the Jane said, oh, I, I don't know. And the Buddha said, well, how will you know when it's dissolved? And the Buddha said, I mean, and the Jane said, oh, I, I, don't, I don't really know. <laughs> and the Buddha said, monks, this is truly foolish practice. And they walked on. The point of that story is that without right intention and without right view, we're just kind of going in our own kind of self-beliefs. We're just sort of pursuing some fictional idea of what salvation is like or supposed to give us. And the beauty of this practice is that our salvation comes from our experience what we know and experience, the practice to do, and how it works. So we learn the mechanism, we learn the mechanics, we relearn the logic, and we learn the direction as we practice. And therefore, it's not just based upon some belief, standing and dissolving your karma, but based upon the actual experience that we have in our meditation, which leads to taking the next step the next intention, the next resolve to move in that same and similar direction. So when the view is wrong and the aspiration is wrong, the whole thing breaks down. In the analogy of the raft, the Buddha said, using the analogy of the raft as the eightfold path to cross the stream of conditioning to get to the other side of freedom, the that analogy, right view, is analogous to us knowing that there's another bank. That there is some intimation in you that life could be different than the way you are living it now. That's right view. 
and that that would mean things being more connected and less separate than they are now. That would be right view. Right aspiration is deciding to go in that direction. There's a bank, I'm going there. And it takes a certain commitment, a willingness to have the breath knocked out of you because your life is going to be turned upside down in that process. Some of us just want a little tweaking. <laughs> Perhaps most people in this room just want to be tweaked a little. Not really upset. Maybe just a little happier. Maybe just to be able to get along with my boyfriend or girlfriend. Perhaps a little more tranquility, a little less confusion. Some way to be able to work in my job so that I am more functional. Maybe one-pointedness so that I can concentrate on things instead of having my mind just stance around. All of those things are very, very nice. And each of those are noble ambitions in and of themselves. And there are many steps to the other bank. But let us not forget what this practice is really about. They say that there are 250 or something side benefits to meditation. Not only what I have just mentioned, but many, many, many others. But there is one bank, and that is the bank of total freedom. When we are free of pain and suffering in this world. Not some abstract, distant place. Not some conjured mental posture that can be untouched but a mind that lives vibrantly and awake in the midst of the world, in the midst of life, and thereby establishes itself within life and not as separate from it. We come into the world to eliminate suffering. We don't hide from it. And that's why I especially appreciate those of us who are willing to take apart our life and to bring that practice into our life. Yes, retreating is important, but if it doesn't have context to the rest of our life, it's useless. Because we live outside of retreat 99.9% .9 of our time. And we can have very refined and beautiful and lovely mind states within a retreat and be quick-tempered and irritable the first day outside of it. So salvation is here. It has to be. It has to be within the very midst of life. And it is for that reason that I come to a community to teach and not stay at a meditation center. For I think that is a statement of where life's ultimate freedom has to reside. So there can be wrong view and wrong aspiration. There can also be right view and wrong aspiration. I have a friend who is very spiritual in her own way. She is a Christian and a very strong, uh, inter uh, strict interpretation of the Bible Christian. And so her view is one of becoming more Christ-like. That's how she would describe her practice, I think. 
And yet one day we were talking and she said, we were talking about welfare or something. And she said, uh, somehow she felt that people on welfare, some people on welfare would have to die before they understood the limits of free handouts, something like that. And I said to her, does that not, is that not in conflict with your view of becoming Christ-like? Is there not some problem there? You see? And I'll save you the details of the discussion, but the point is that her aspiration was not in a line with the view that she was holding. Now, before we get very disparaging about that woman, let us look at our own lives and see where our lives falter in terms of our aspiration and whether there is some wobbling, where there is some wobbling, I know there is, where we need to sort of correct our own stance, where we need to be able to be more upright and more straight and linear. That is the point of all the Dharma talks. That is the point of all the precepts. That is the point of all the rules and rigor and homework assignments that we go through, is to bring our lives into alignment to the fact of that view, so that our aspirations will feed upon that view and march forward in sure fashion. So to look at our own lives is an important aspect. Questioning our own motive, our old motivations. Figuring out where it is that we step off the pavement, so to speak. The Buddha said, wholesome intentions lead to greater contentment and unwholesome intentions lead to greater dissatisfaction. So where are we discontent? Where does it not work for us? I was, uh, I went to a movie this week that I really appreciated. It was called Straight Story. And um, very, very briefly, I actually get very irritated when people start telling me movies. <laughs> so I will not do that except to say that this is about a man who has a brief brush with death and then decides that he needs to go heal his relationship to his brother who lives several hundred miles away and this man has no way to get to his brothers since his eyesight is poor so he decides to ride his lawnmower there and he meets a lot of people along the way it's a beautiful story but the point is that the intention in the view were to heal the point was that he had felt that somehow given his this momentary brush with his, his mortality, he decided he needed to heal his life in a certain way. And the part that was the most jagged and in obvious need of, uh, of attention was his relationship with his brother. So he literally drives hundreds of miles on a riding moor on along the side of the road to get to his brother's house. And the intention, you see, all along the way, at one point, somebody says that they would like to drive him there. But he realizes that the real healing is in the way and the mode of his transportation itself. 
and he turns it down. And it's analogous, I think, to somebody saying, I know the way. Just hook yourself up to me in this spiritual life. Come just resign to the fact that I know and you don't and follow me. As opposed to really doing the work ourselves. As opposed to riding that mower and looking at our mind and setting our course with that intention, with that resolve. He, it really felt when he got on the lawnmower that it was an impossible journey. I don't think anyone in the theater, even in the movie realm, could imagine <laughs> that that could occur. But it did. And he was so one-pointed in how he was going to make it that it happened. We don't have to worry about where we're going. We just have to go. We don't have to create big visions and ideals about the view of connectedness. We just have to take one step after another towards healing. That means when we have some part of ourselves that feels out of alignment, some emotion or some action that is an obvious, in, in obvious discord with the rest of humanity or the rest of life, we just have to step back on. We don't have to go back 10 places like you do in Candyland. <laughs> you don't have to go to jail like in Monopoly. You just have to get back on the path. Just step back into it. Forget the guilt and the shame. It doesn't work. It doesn't help. Just walk. Just take the next step. The next step towards healing. And whatever way we define that, whatever way we define it, it doesn't have to be some mystical vision, some sort of heavenly realm that we see that, some glob of oneness that we're walking towards. Because whatever way we define it in our current level of understanding, that's the path. That's the way across the moat. That's the way to the other bank. That's right intention. To heal rather than to separate. And in fact, we can define goodness, if we put down our morality for a minute, as that which brings things together. Right? And evil is that which separates. So every time I step towards to heal, to offer a hand, to lean out, I am doing basic goodness. Let the morality statement go. Let the thou shalt be good go. And just work with the view, allowing the right aspirations to come from the heart. The heart knows the way. The mind will create all kinds of division. That's why right thought is not the way to go in this thing. Right thought will keep you separated and very distant. But right heart is the way to go. The heart that knows, that wants to approach, that wants to reach out, that's willing to drive the lawnmower several hundred miles to get to its destination. How can that not be also very satisfying in the woman today, 
I said to her, you know, there's a lot of joy in this work, although you're not feeling it now. And when we get into the right view of where the bank is, and the right sense of what is occurring, it's light. It's not heavy work. It's only heavy because we believe ourselves to be so full of who we are. Our images are so heavy upon us. We think that everything is a statement of our personness. That all of the grief and the ill intentions and the unworthiness is a statement of some fundamental sense of I-ness. And it's just baggage. It's just paint on a pillar. It's just paint on top of raw wood. It's not you. It's not me. It doesn't need to define us. It need not be so heavy to let that go. We're really not giving up anything. We're growing into the access of the heart, the access of caring, the access of concern, the access of lightness of being, where we float and move with the events of the world rather than to place ourselves in opposition to them. And again, that needs no special environment to do. But it does need each other. We need all the help we can get. In fact, people represent the ability to be able to move in that direction. Because often the scarring occurred through relationship. It is through relationship that we can uncover and recover our sense of oneness. So it's not an opposition. We don't have to become isolated. We don't have to retreat at the North Pole. And in fact, those of us who isolate ourselves in couple or in individual do a disservice, although they think they're feeding their own lives, often do a disservice to their spiritual growth because they, we develop this internal thought pattern which just condenses and creates a sense of projection that we spread upon the world. And then we live according to that wrong view, often reinforced with by the other couple because you live so closely together. So the next series of classes I do is on the distortions of mind, the moody mind, the isolated mind, the controlling mind. Now, one of the ways that we can begin to come into that, to begin to come into that understanding, is to start working with dependent, uh, codependent arising in the Buddhist tradition. Dependent arising. Dependent arising in Buddhism is a really a beautiful way that when we're quiet, we begin to see the world manifesting. That things arise because of conditions. It takes the I, or the centered, self-centeredness, out of what life is about. And you just see that it manifests according when certain conditions there, this, this arises. Dependent arising. We have to be very settled back. We have to be very receptive to be able to perceive how that occurs. But once we get into that view, once we get into that frame of reference, it takes a sense of control, or my will, out of the picture. And that's where the Jewish Christian sayings come in, like let go, let God, or just let be, 
let it be the different ways that we can access the view of the world that just sees how it manifests in the Zen saying that spring, has spring comes and the grass grows by itself. It's not that I have to exert any control or influence that the grass grows, but that it arises naturally based upon the conditions of the world. And so it is from that theme that I would like us to look at some old strategies and develop new ways of intoning that view within us so that we can then have the right aspiration to move with that view towards the healing and heart connections that it deserves. It really means kind of retooling ourselves. And yes, it does mean turning most of our lives around. But what else have we got to do? The first one is being receptive rather than willful, receiving rather than controlling. If you have a strong disposition to control, examine it, look at it. See what you're missing on the other side of the equation. See what the other half of life is about, the part that you don't control. Start seeing the parts of life that are beyond your control and begin to ease more into a kind of receptive posture so that when you're in the middle of something that you normally would exert a great deal of will, use that as a cue to fall back, to just let yourself be open and just to watch and listen to the situation that's there already and to find our place within it. A conversation, for instance, you'll find has a very natural sequence, very natural evolution. Starts with the beginning, middle, and has a definite end. Rather than trying to exert our will upon the conversation for it to end more quickly than it naturally will, or for us to try to manipulate or distort it, just fall back into a kind of a comfortable receptivity of how that conversation evolves on its own. It's a way to get a feeling for how to receive life rather than to exert. And when we receive life, we are more able to see the natural laws which are occurring, like dependent arising. Another one, learning rather than asserting. Now this one I like, I have a little thing I want to read. Unfortunately, I didn't bring my glasses, so I will read it at a distance. <laughs> And this is, uh, this is uh, actually, it's a very interesting, it's the actual transcript of a radio conversation between a U.S. naval ship and Canadian authorities. True. This is a true transcript. So this is an actual transcript of a radio conversation between a U.S. naval ship with Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland in October 1995. Americans, please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. Canadians, recommend that you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Americans, this is the captain of the U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Canadians, no. I say again, you divert your course. Can't you just hear these people? <laughs> Americans, this is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the US American fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. 
I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north. That's one five degree north. Or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. Canadians, this is a lighthouse. Your call. <laughs> <laughs> How easy that whole conversation could have gone had we been willing to not assert, but to be receptive. Hello, how are you out there? <laughs> We see somebody heading at us, blah, blah, blah. You can see, though, that it could have been resolved with much less tension. <laughs> but when you're the captain or the admiral of the second largest fleet, you assert that power. You assert that influence immediately. So too do we in our positions. So too do we, with virtually every relationship that we meet, have some sense of power in relationship to that other person or thing and then exert or whatever based upon what we think the situation calls for. Can we develop a way to receive and not work it? It's very much attuned to the Buddhist philosophy of dependent arising just to see what we really are about and whether we have to actually move into this kind of power and force, or whether we can develop, again, that sense of receptivity. The third view or way to hold the view in a different, so that we can become more aligned to right view and develop right aspirations, is to develop authenticity rather than image. There's a television ad, I think it's uh, one, a tennis player that says, image is everything. That's someone who's very lost. <laughs> honesty of motives. I mean, the heart yearns for honesty. Doesn't it? I mean, just the word. Just, just feel the word in you. Just to be honest. To be authentic. Authentic is such a nice word. Resonates with the raw wood of who we are. The raw fiber. To be authentic just to be authentic and not pretentious. Because that's what we're talking about when we come to right view, is that authenticity growing into that. Because in genuine fact, we are just what we are, not this pretension, this image, this role, these assumptions, but just what we are. Just we are, no more, no less. No greater than, no less than any other being. And if you have to ask yourself, how do I know? All you have to do is be with somebody who's dying. I don't know anything that levels the playing field like death. Try to take your crown across. Try to take your bank account. Try to take your whatever. We came in that way, we go out that way. Everything else is pretension that we add to that. It's just the bare fact, the bare authentic wood. And why not just keep it authentic in the middle, in between the two extremes?
And to keep coming back to that, I don't have to do that anymore. As we begin to practice more and more, we see that the pretensions of life, I don't have to do that. You just give them up. I don't, I don't need to do that. I don't need to go that way anymore. I don't need to act that way. Immediately come back to right intention, to right aspiration. In line with the view, in line with the heart, in line with the simplicity and authentic, true authentic quality of life. What matters to me? Getting my way or being honest? That's really what it comes down to, isn't it? When you're angry, getting my way or just being honest and connecting. It always is that. Now, intention is our responsibility, but not the effect of the intention, not the result of the intention. That is, if my intention is to heal, and something happens after I do that action, which actually separates. The only thing that I have control over is my intention, not the result of what I do. That's very, very important to understand because we often hold ourselves accountable for the result and that's beyond our control. That's playing God. But our intention, we do have control over. And we can either listen to it or we can act from it without listening to it in which case it'll be all muddled and confused and quite likely much more complicated but if we just look and see what our intention is here is it to heal is it right view is my aspiration here to connect being honest being authentic with this situation see how they all come together being receptive so that i can hear myself and see the situation for what it calls for, okay, then I'll do this. And then if it all falls flat, then it falls flat. That's it. I uh, started a hospice program in Texas uh, about 10 years ago. And it was a, really had a vibrant hospice. I left the hospice and no more than a year it was devastated. It was sold to a for-profit. It was just devastated. And I kept thinking, okay, what did I do here? Why shouldn't, I should have stayed longer. I don't you know, all the ways that we get into the unforgiving mind scenario. And I did just what I needed to do. It wasn't about what it was going to become. It was about what it was. It's about what our life is right now. It's about what the actions are about right now. Whether it, the child turns out to be a criminal, I don't know. We do the best we can while we're parents right now. And that's it. And that's all we're responsible for. Now, we have to be careful that we don't use that as a whitewash, not to take responsibility for our intentions. Because intentions can creep in there that can be very faulty and very disconnected, very separate. My intention can really be to hurt as I, somebody says hi, good morning to me, and I don't say anything or I brush them off, thinking to myself, well, she deserves that kind of response. She was always very cynical with me and I don't need to talk to her anymore. I mean, I can rationalize my intention, but really my intention wasn't to connect. It was to dismiss. And so how authentic and how honest can I be with my intentions? How true to them 
can I be, instead of rationalizing them and saying it doesn't matter. It does matter. If I'm speeding in my car and I run over a child, I may not have the intentions of running over the child, but why was I speeding? I'm accountable for that speed. If I'm driving the road paying a lot of attention at the right speed and a child dashes in front of my car and I run over the child, I'm not accountable for that. You see, it's very quickly, intentions have to be really understood and some clarity expressed on them or they'll get very funny with, we'll get very funny with them and we'll rationalize our intentions away. It's a significant practice just to watch our intentions in life. What really matters and where our aspirations are. Aspiration and intention have the same kind of, where we're going and how we're getting there. And this practice is all about where we are now and how we're dealing with this moment in time. Not the moment of time when you're sitting, but the moment in time when your boss is yelling at you, when your child is screaming, or when you can't sleep at night. The moment of time when the phone is ringing and the soup is boiling. That moment of time. How do you lift the handle, the spoon of soup to your mouth? That moment of time. There's not some great celestial moment of time in which it'll all be all right. It's all the moments of time. Each moment of time, right view, right aspiration. And if we have that, just think, the rest of the practice, right speech, action, livelihood, meditation, all of the practice follows that, doesn't it? Can't you just feel it flow? Right speech, well, what's my view here? Is it to connect or is it to hurt? Is it to manipulate? Is it to harm? We'll get into all of that as we talk to speech, but you can see that once we framed the whole way that we're going to be in terms of view and intention, then it all just comes starts flowing. Without intention or view, we can practice right speech, but what are we practicing? We don't even have to know where we're going with it. We're trying to be good. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to be good. We're trying to fulfill our mother's promise of us. <laughs> Great, that'll make you a good person, but not a free one. And there's a story of a child who stands up in the seat of the front seat of her car with her father, and her father gets in the car and says, Dear, you've got to sit down before I can start driving. Buckle up. The child says, I'm not going to sit down. The father says, Okay, then I'm not going to go. Then the child begrudgingly sits down. The father starts the car, and the child says, Daddy, in my mind, I'm still standing up. <laughs> Without right intentions, we are left standing. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.